Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Fiona Livingston. Fiona has been working in suicide prevention for over seven years She holds a number of educational workshops so that people have the skills needed to identify someone who might be struggling or thinking about suicide, to know what to say and to know what supports are available. Fiona delivers training to health professionals, service providers, as well as community members who have no professional connection to suicide prevention. Fiona's dedication for this work comes from her own lived experiences around suicide. She delivers this important work through her business, Find Hope. More recently, Fiona identified the need for people to understand how to support people who are bereaved by suicide, and she has developed a workshop that addresses this. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Jodie. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so excited for our conversation today. So I know that you have a wealth of personal and professional experience in this field, so it's going to be really useful for our listeners. Would you start by sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm based in a small rural town called Inverell in New South Wales, and we're on a couple of acres. We've got six dogs and uh, a pet sheep who's quite entertaining. (laughs) So don't be surprised if you hear some dogs barking or something going on during our time together today. Excellent. And so, and tell everyone, what's the name of your sheep? Uh, Hope. So Uh she's kind of like my little mascot for Find Uh Hope. And it, it came to me because was because we've uh, leased a couple of properties and uh, we farm sheep. Mm-hmm. And so I went out uh, to the property this one particular day and it was a you know, horrible drought season. And so your poor mums were leaving their babies and so hungry and all of that sort of thing. So I saw her there, could tell that mum wanted nothing to do with her. So I picked her up and gave her home and I've been banned from going out there by my husband ever since, but that's okay. So it's like, well, I found hope. Oh, that is fantastic. One of my mentors, Carolyn Coston, she's a world-renowned leader in the field of disordered eating, and she says that there is a special place for people with lived experience to do this work, and I know this is one of the tenets behind your work at Find Hope. So this uh, podcast is for women who have suffered with early childhood trauma, the impact that this has had. So they might be suffering with addiction, depression, disordered eating, poor body image, and that underlying sense of never feeling good enough. So I know you've journeyed through many of these experiences yourself and you're very uh, kindly offering to share your personal story with us today. So would you be willing to share that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And as you've mentioned, Jodie, I I have journeyed through uh, many, if not all of those things throughout my life. Mm. So for me, I guess it started when I was around nine years of age 
I had grown up. So first of all, very loving, very stable family, didn't want for anything, two older siblings, everything was great. But there was always this message that my parents would send us. And I can remember most clearly being around nine years of age when when they first really started to communicate. And that was basically saying, you can be anything in life, but don't ever be fat. It was like being overweight could be the worst thing that you could be. Wow. And and at the time, being a nine-year-old, and my mum had always been a stay-at-home mum, which I absolutely loved. But then we had a family move and my parents bought a business and mum started working in that business. So I'd come home from school for the first time and my mum wasn't there. And so for me, I'd started to use food in a way that I could have some soothing and some enjoyment Mm. from that. That resulted in me uh, gaining weight, which unfortunately my parents were more than willing to point out. And another very clear memory for me was again around that age, perhaps 10, is my parents asking my brother and my sister and I to put on our swimwear and have a photo taken as a way to monitor our weight. Oh, dear. Yes. And so I remember, as I said, being about that nine or 10, and I have this really clear memory of sucking my stomach in at that Mm. age. So that for me was certainly the introduction to being concerned about weight Mm. and taking various different measures over the years to try and control and manage that. And Mm. it was also my first introduction to feeling as though how I looked or what I weighed was a reflection on who I was as a person and as a way to measure my worth. Gosh. And so how did that sort of progress from that? Yeah, so from that for me, so I would have been in, say, maybe year four or five. Yeah. And then I remember around like sort of towards the end of year six, I remember starting to really compare myself to my other friends or to my friends rather and just thinking they're thinner than me, they're prettier than me, I basically need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I first really started actively restricting what I was eating and then so by the time I started high school I was really very thin and that was also my first experience of looking in the mirror and realizing I was thin but realizing that that hadn't changed how I felt about myself yeah yeah of course I couldn't make the connection at that point but I just remember being surprised that this is what I'd wanted. And I felt that if I achieved this, I'd feel differently, but I actually don't. Mm. So then it became for me just a way to exercise some sort of control in my Mm. life. And I remember my parents saying how good I looked. And that was again, and I experienced this multiple times throughout later years in my life of feeling like this is pretty horrible, very horrible what I'm doing to myself and it doesn't feel good at all, Mm. but other people are basically telling me it's a positive thing. So then probably from ages maybe 14 to 15, 16, I would go to the chemist, I would get diet pills, I was using laxatives, so went through all of that. From 16 uh, to 19, I was bulimic Mm. and 
what I also discovered about that, about that particular form of disordered eating, it was very much one, a form of control, two, a form of punishment because, well, you know, you can't be thin any other way so you deserve this and you have to take this. And I really began to notice that, you know, so I was torturing myself, right? But then people, because I was losing weight, would say, oh, you look fantastic. So, again, it was reinforcing what I was doing to myself that this was a good thing. This is something that I hear all the time because what's happening is is that uh, particularly girls and women in, who have been in larger bodies or fat bodies and they're being told by their parents or by, you know, and by society to lose weight and then the praise that people get for losing weight, mm. typically behind that is such uh, dysfunctional behaviour. And yeah. I think for teenagers, we really don't get that at the time. It's not until years later in therapy and you start looking at that and thinking mm. how, how fucked up that is, you know? Exactly. Because you recognise it or sometimes you might recognise it at the time, but you can't mm. actually link the connection with that. Yeah. So when I was 19, I met my uh, now husband mm-hmm. and he was the first person that I ever told that I was bulimic. So that was the first time in my whole life that I had ever shared that with another single human being. And he was, you know, you know him, he's such a a very gentle, kind, loving person. So he was very loving and supportive. And I began to almost feel that from sharing that with him and having his love and support and, of course, him reflecting to me that he doesn't want me to to do something like that to myself and I don't deserve that and all of that sort of thing. So it made me move away from that behaviour at that time but then later in my life re-engaging in that. Yeah. And how did that leave you feeling about yourself? I mean, obviously you're talking about low self-worth and you're going to comparison. Were you anxious? And I mean, typically there's a lot of anxiety under underlying dieting and eating issues, but were you depressed as well or? Uh, Very much more depression than anxiety for Uh me personally. And looking back, I believe that I was first depressed as in, depression as an illness from around the age of 13 and I remember something must have been going on in my life then and I remember mum and dad took me to a counsellor and I so clearly remember the counsellor saying does it feel like there's a big black cloud over you that won't shift and I said yes that's exactly how I feel so she didn't identify or at least not to me at the time that it was depression but from my experience now I definitely know that's what it was at the time and I was not clinically diagnosed until I was 22 but low self-worth for me up until I'd been in therapy for several years Mm. and absolutely hated myself Mm. was never good enough was not worth anything the GP did link me in with a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was a person who would have been provisional, you know, someone who was in their early 20s. And I just didn't feel like mm-hmm. I had a rapport or faith in that person. So for me, it was one of those situations where I went once and didn't sort of engage in any sort of therapy until 25. And still when I did, mm-hmm. it was actually an accident. Um, because ironically enough, So it was around like, so 25 was when we were first trying to uh, conceive and that wasn't happening. So I reverted back to 
how can I regain some control in my life? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was through food and my weight. Yeah. And so, you know, lots of restricting eating, lots of grueling exercise and, you know, I had lost a lot of weight mm-hmm. and got to a point where I thought, oh, I'm not losing any more weight. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's a reason why I'm not losing any more weight. So I went and saw a naturopath thinking, oh, maybe this person can put me on some herbs or something like that. You know, all the, the things that we do when oh, yeah. we are in that that state of, you know, trying to gain control through our disordered eating. And it turns out that naturopath was a person who became my therapist. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you've touched briefly on your dad, but, you know, this this really leads us into, and I guess what I, I really would love to focus on today is your life's work and purpose and mm-hmm. your expertise in suicide prevention and after suicide care. Over 20 years as a psychotherapist, all of my clients with eating concerns have had a history of childhood trauma. They also suffer with anxiety and depression or anxiety Mm -hmm. or depression and about a quarter of them have attempted to take their own lives and all of them talk about how there is a deeply wounded part who wishes you know I wish I was dead or I'd rather Mm. be dead than fat that's quite often a a conversation that people have and then when we get to the extreme and severe cases some have suggested for example that anorexia is a slow form of suicide there's a research paper that I read while I was preparing to speak to you and it what does it say? Uh, the comprehensive meta-analysis of the risk of suicide and eating disorders. And they discuss the link between anorexia, bulimia and suicide. And you very mm-hmm. kindly sent me some wonderful research that suggests that for people to desire suicide, they are experiencing two psychological states, perceived burdensomeness and thoughted belongingness. So bearing all that in mind, can you help our audience understand why people may become suicidal and why they may attempt to die by suicide? Sure. So for me, the reason, first of all, why I'm involved in this work, a couple of reasons. So first of all, um, of course, that my dad died by suicide. Mm. And that was an extremely traumatic time in my life. I had begun first thinking about suicide, so no uh, intent, but those thoughts were there from around the age of 14. And that's something that's been with me across my life in varying capacities. Mm. So I have, I guess, a real innate desire to, as much as I can, prevent people from living through such a devastating loss and because I also, obviously, everyone is individual and is going to be different, but I understand what it's like to be so low and so desperate and to feel as though there's no other option. And I was very, very lucky to have the level of support and empathy and understanding that I had. And I completely recognise and acknowledge a lot of people do not have that. So if I can be a part of helping people to understand. So if they do come across someone who is in that space, who is Mm -hmm. thinking about suicide, that they know how to respond in a way that's really helpful. Yeah. So that, I guess, is why I do what I do. And when it comes to what's the research around potential common denominators of people who are thinking about suicide Mm. and specifically 
how can we apply that to people with disordered eating? Mm. So as you said, the research paper I shared with you is by the name of a guy, uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner. So he's a doctor of psychology, uh, Florida State University. And he also has a lived experience of suicide. So his dad died by suicide when he was studying to become a psychologist. Oh, wow. And he, yeah. And so for him, he just had this burning desire like every single person does who has lost a loved one to suicide to understand why, because it's that very haunting question. Why did this happen? And I've never met a person bereaved by suicide who hasn't questioned that in in some capacity. Mm. So he really wanted to know why. So he's dedicated his life to researching this very question, why do people die by suicide? So his theory says in order for a person to desire suicide, so that is to think that suicide is a very real option for them, that they're experiencing two psychological states to the point that they feel they will always feel like that. So there's no hope around them not feeling that way. So as you said, those states are thwarted belongingness, Mm. which is a a term that people are more likely to, uh, that will more likely make sense to them, translates to I am alone and or I don't belong. Mm. So if we look at that for a moment from the viewpoint of someone with disordered eating, um, so as I had shared, it was some years later that I'd had, so I'd had disordered eating for a good six, seven years, you know, the first experience from when I was nine, so even 11 years. But that was the first time before I'd ever shared that with another Mm. living soul. Mm. And so there's that secretive nature and that alone can make us feel so alone, like we're the only ones going through this. I don't belong with my friends or family or society because I don't behave in the way that they do or I can't relate to how they behave or they can't relate to me or they wouldn't understand even if I told them is just one of many examples of how someone could feel as though they're alone or that Mm. they don't belong. I might just interject a little bit there, Fiona, because something that I I notice comes up a lot is that when... uh, you know, when people are diagnosed with eating disorders, sort of um, clinically diagnosed in, in sort of teenage years, or I guess when they're sort of found out, people with, and I've said this before, that, that typically people with anorexia get found out a lot faster because they it's very obvious in their body that they've lost a lot of weight. But people like you and I, where we emotionally eating or bulimia, we tend to stay at a normal weight range and it goes undetected for so much longer. And so, you know, I know for myself it was something like, um, what was it, 13, 14 years before I actually sort of reached out for help. And like you're saying, I mean, you're lucky you met your husband when you did and, and that you felt safe enough to talk about it then, but you went for a very long period as well without being undetected. Exactly. And any weight loss I'd experienced was praised because it wasn't yep. to that point of where this person is so physically thin that something is happening. Yeah. And so then we move on to that second psychological state, which is perceived burdensomeness. And that translates to, I am a burden. The people I love will be better off without me, or it could be society will be better off without me. Mm. And in order for us to feel like a burden, 
we're also going to be experiencing very low self-esteem, very low self-worth as well. And so I think that those two states of mind are likely to be common for people who have disordered eating or and particularly with an illness like anorexia. Yes. So that, um, and, and as I said, for someone to feel suicidal with those states of mind, Thomas Joyner's research says that in their mind, they will always feel like that, that will never change because mm. most of us can probably relate to feeling like that at one point or another, yeah. but we might have the foresight to see, but I won't always feel like this. So people who are thinking about suicide, who are really desiring suicide as an option, feel as though that will never change. There is no hope around Mm. this. What makes this theory particularly interesting is that it gives some explanation around what separates people from feeling suicidal to acting on those thoughts. Okay. Because if if we look at some statistics in Australia, so it's estimated that approximately 5% of the population in Australia each year will experience thoughts of suicide. So that's about 1.2 million people who will have those thoughts. So it's important to acknowledge that for someone it could be a fleeting thought or they could be they could really be thinking about it and for other people it's like this is a very real option for me. So it like a continuum of how they might think about it. Then we know that approximately 65,000 people a year attempt suicide. And then the most recent statistics we have in Australia is from 2018. And we know that year just over 3,000 people died by suicide. So if we look at over a million people thinking about suicide, just over 3,000 people dying by suicide, like there's a huge gap in those Mm. numbers. And what this theory does is, is help explain. And this will start to really particularly link in with disordered eating. So there's a reason why very few people do die by suicide if it's compared to the number of of people living in the country, for example. One is one too many, absolutely. Yeah. But the reason why suicide is hard, and I always think like when people go, oh, it's a coward's way out, it's like it's actually so physically hard because it goes against all of our wiring as humans mm, because we yeah. are wired to survive. So we survival, have this, yeah. Yes. We have this built-in instinct to avoid pain, to avoid injury, to avoid death. So this theory says that in order for someone to either die by suicide or to have a near-lethal attempt, they must have overridden these mm, instincts. Gosh, yeah. So then if we look at someone who may have an illness like anorexia, mm. who experience pain on a daily basis, because we have to remember in order to override these responses, there needs to be an exposure to death and pain. So Mm. pain uh, is going to be a feature of daily life, most likely. So emotional pain, physical pain. And people with anorexia, for example, have already overridden one major survival instinct, which is around eating. Yes, you know, because, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's very, very hard to do for people. And they've already done that. So it's not as much of a leap as what it would be for someone who was experiencing this illness okay. to get yep. to that point. 
Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Because mm. I know by the time, certainly by the time someone get, becomes hospitalised with an eating disorder, their brain is not working in the normal fashion anymore anyway. So it's not just a psychological issue. It becomes a physiological issue in terms of overriding. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one thing I do just want to touch on mm. Um, because I'm sure that there are people uh, listening, as you said, who um, have been through trauma, who have disordered eating, who may be experiencing anorexia as well. And they might find that they're really resonating with this model and then therefore think, oh, well, that's the path I'm going down. Well, I'm destined for suicide. And I really just want to make it clear that that's actually not the case. This is not necessarily your fate and it's important for us to make a distinction that while there's lots of risk factors around suicide, so anorexia being one of them, Mm. most people with anorexia or depression, for example, most people don't die by suicide. Yes, it's a risk factor, but most people don't, meaning that there are other options even if this point it doesn't feel like there are. Yeah. I think that's really, really important that most people don't die like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, people have complications with eating issues, you know, prolonged bulimia and anorexia and binge eating are all going Mm -hmm. to have an impact on someone's uh, physical health and well-being. But so what about then for people who feel like dying? You know, who who are who are having suicide, you know, I'd be better off dead. I'd I'd Mm -hmm. rather be dead than fat. Yeah. And I think it's one of those, it's that struggle that people who are thinking about suicide feel. They feel like they're in a, between a rock and a hard place because mm. it's like, I can't live like this mm. for whatever reason, but I want the pain to end. Yeah. And the way that that can happen is through death by suicide. So it's almost like and we often hear many people who have felt suicidal or who have attempted suicide, and this is something I can relate to myself as well, it's like it's not that I so much wanted to die but I didn't know how to live with the circumstances or the way that I was feeling. So that felt like that's the only way I know to end this pain. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're talking about something so important. It's something that I notice in the women that I've worked with over the years. Often this emotional pain starts very, very young. And I know from raising kids myself that when they get an idea in their head, it becomes like the only idea, the only way of looking at something. And then it's, mm. it's repeated again and again and again and again and again over the years. And then of course, something like disordered eating comes in or, or even just chronic you know, I I consider chronic dieting, disordered eating. So it might be a a lifetime of dieting, bulimia, whatever it is, excessive exercise, that becomes the only way to cope. But there is actually Mm. another way. (laughs) And what's happened is no one's helped them with their emotional pain. Yes, 100%. So I think that when we're in a time of crisis or pain or whatever it might be, we go to the only way that we know how to cope with it. And until we learn, there's other ways to cope. And I think, to be honest, before I started my journey with therapy Mm. and I would hear people talk and I would be aware that they would say, you know, you know, got to talk about what's going on, got to find the root of your problems and all Mm. of that sort of stuff. And I really felt like, oh, that's not going to make a difference and I'm still going to feel this way. And this is always who I've been, so I'm not going to change. So I was almost in many ways when I started my therapy 
someone who really didn't believe that it would help me until it did. <laughs> yeah, until it did, yeah. Well, I think what we'll do is we might, because I, I really want to hear your take on therapy a bit later, but mm. are you bringing me into the next question? Why don't many suicidal people actually reach out for help for themselves? And yes. I think part of that is not believing that the help will work. Absolutely. And I think like, see, I always see on social media, if it's someone who's died by suicide, people have a tendency to make posts going, oh, if you feel depressed or you feel suicidal, reach out for help. But I can tell you right now, as someone who has been suicidal, most people will not reach out for help because they believe that no one or nothing will stop them from feeling that way. There's also the concern around being a burden to other people, worried that other people are going to judge them. And so that's, you know, a big thing I do with my work as well is putting or at least sharing some of that responsibility to society in general so that we know that someone is going to reach out for help because I liken it to if someone drops unconscious having a heart attack on the street. Mm. We don't expect that person to wave someone down <laughs> and to help them. Like it would be ludicrous. To laugh, but... <laughs> but yeah, exactly. When you think of it though, yeah. you think, oh, that's ridiculous. Like why would we? And it's the same with people who are thinking about suicide. Now, obviously mm. for some people it can be, and this is probably something we get into talk about soon, but for some people it might be an obvious sign that they're thinking about suicide. For some people, it might be subtle, and that's the point of training. But the point is we have to stop putting that expectation on people who are very unwell, really you know, because point. it's not a healthy state of mind where we think that we want to kill ourselves. Mm, there's, something, so, there's something that comes up for me every year when it comes up on Facebook, and it's coming up this month. I won't mm-hmm. say because I don't want to put it down, but... um. I know, yep, I, I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> There's a certain day where officers throw parties and the one year I just remember looking at there was all this food on the table at this party and it was all coloured in pink and blue and green and there was donuts and there was fruit and there was all these foods on the table and they were asking, you know, uh, for people to reach out for help. And I looked at this table of food and I thought if I was in an office and this was going on, I would actually just probably feel shame and Mm. be thinking how can I eat uh, as many donuts as possible (laughs) (laughs) to medicate my shame. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. Yeah, And it's not that organisations aren't doing great work, so I don't want listeners to think that because they they absolutely are. But I Mm. I, I kind of feel like sometimes these things really miss the mark because, I mean, to me, everyone's standing there having a party as if you're going to go up and say to people, I Mm. need help. Mm. I'm just going to go to the donut store. Exactly. That's right. And I think awareness campaigns and things like that can be really good and they have their place. But if they're expecting people to, even if they're expecting people to reach out to someone that they're worried about, we can't expect someone to reach out to someone they're worried about if they don't know what to do if the person says, I'm not going well at all. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, because you know, people, people typically, and I've interviewed someone else about this toxic positivity, it's like, oh, well, yeah. you know, I, I mean, we know this from going through IVF together. Yep. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> you'll get over it. Just focus on the silver lining. <laughs> exactly. And that's going to make people feel worse. So while yeah. it might be good to check in and see how someone's going, if they're not doing well, uh, it's likely going to cause more harm than good mm. if we 
try and, you know, say some of the things that you've just mentioned that people had said to us and people say to lots of other people as well. So I think it's really critical for people to, yes, we need awareness, but then we also need understanding and education and knowing how to respond and what's helpful and what's not helpful. Yeah. So, you know, if we're talking about the audience that would be listening to this today and, you know, people with suffering with emotional eating, binge eating, bulimia, Mm. for example, they often do go undetected by health professionals. And I've talked about this a lot in other interviews. And in fact, when people are in a big body, if they go to the doctor, they get pathologized and told to lose weight, which then adds fuel Mm. to their eating Mm. issues. Mm. And family and friends often say, oh, look, this person's putting on so much weight. Have you got any advice for me for them? I'm like, well, are they worried about their weight? So people tend to focus on the wrong things. So what signs might there be that a person might be showing if they are considering suicide? Or even, you know, I hear that jump is quite big from thinking about it to actually doing it. But but even just for someone who is really, really down and depressed and having those thoughts and those people who may act on those thoughts. Sure. So it often starts with really subtle changes. Obviously, the better we know someone, the more able we could potentially see. But one of the very, because as I've said, there's there's about a million risk factors for suicide. But one of the most common things amongst people who have died by suicide is that leading up to their death, Mm. their sleep was massively disrupted, not sleeping well. So one of the most golden pieces of advice that I can provide is being aware if someone's talking about sleep, because as we talked about earlier, often people don't reach out for help. For, they're worried they'll burden others or they're most often very worried about being judged. So while they may not come out and say, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that, they might, or they will be more likely to say things like, oh, I'm so tired. I just haven't wow. been sleeping well. And so that's an opportunity for us to be aware and respond to that. Oh, that's, that's no good. How long has that been going on for? Mm. And it might be, oh, you know, which I know you can relate to this, that oh, the neighbour's dog's been up barking all <laughs> night so I haven't been able to sleep. <laughs> but they also might say it's been going on for weeks or months or whatever. What's been happening in that time? So quite often when we gently peel back these layers, we're more likely to see more obvious signs. Um, social withdrawal. Mm-hmm. is another one. And obviously in COVID times, that's a little bit harder to detect because yeah. um, there's not a whole lot of face-to-face socialising going on. Um, other things though then can range to things that are more obvious and things that people might say or do. Um, so it might be giving away possessions that are really important to them that why would they just give this to me when I know how much they love or appreciate or enjoy this certain thing? It can be engaging in really reckless or risky behaviour. So it might be things like um, normally I'd wear a seatbelt, but I won't today because to Mm. see what happens. Mm. So not kind of having that value on their life. Saying things, certainly any indication of saying things like everyone will be better off without me. Mm. No one can do anything to help me now. I'm trapped. There's no way out. I wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. I wish I was dead. All of those sorts of things is very, very important that we respond to because that person is sharing that with us for a reason. You know, if they didn't want us to ask or or talk about suicide, they wouldn't actually be sharing that. So we have to find a way to 
respond to that pain that they're obviously experiencing. I just want to add in there, this is really, really important, this part as a therapist. So what typically happens is that someone will come and say, I just want to sleep forever. I'd be better off dead. Mm -hmm. And even children say these kind of things sometimes. I remember having a conversation with a colleague about this in children and often parents will say something like, oh, don't talk like that. And even though children typically don't, you know, they're not saying I'm going to suicide, it's really, really important to even allow children the space to talk about that. So what I would typically do and recommend for children and in therapy is I would say, oh, tell me about the part of you that wants to die or that feels Mm. like dying. You know, how does she feel? What's life like for her? And Mm. by doing that, you're allowing that part to be seen and heard. And and the same goes with children, you know. I would say, uh, oh, it sounds like you've had a really, really, really tough day. Do you want to tell me about Mm. it? Was the whole day bad? Or was Mm. it, oh, no, just at lunchtime when so-and-so got me into trouble with the teacher or whatever it is? Mm. And that way you're helping children also realize that there's different parts of who they are that one part feels really really bad but actually another part had fun at recess yes absolutely and I think you just raised such an important point there as well when people are saying certain things like it might be you know I wish I was dead or Mm. life is too hard or whatever it might be that's their way of expressing the pain that they're in or the pain that part of them is in yeah and so by not allowing that to be heard, Mm. it's just shutting it down. And the other thing I think as well, um, and most people, most adults, I would say probably well over 50% of anyone who comes to a workshop that I deliver all believe the myth that if someone's talking about suicide, then they're attention seeking. So Mm, it's like the ones that talk about it never do it. It's the quiet ones you've got to watch. And it's like, no, if someone is talking about suicide, it doesn't matter if they've talked about it 50 times before, it Mm. needs to be taken seriously. Yep. Just another sort of little bit for people to understand too. And, you know, sometimes when, you know, if I'm sitting with someone and typically they don't like this part of themselves, that that they just don't like themselves full stop basically. So I often Mm. do a little exercise where I go knock, knock, uh, who's there? It's the depressed part or it's the part that wants to die. And I say to the client, so what would you say to this part? And typically they say, even themselves, they say, go away. I don't want anything to do with it. Mm. And so I say, how about we, okay, let's, let's try a different route and we'll do knock, knock, knock. Uh, who's there? Oh, it's, it's the part that wants to die or it's, it's depression. And I always say to them, come on in, come and have a seat. What do you need? A warm blanket, a cup of tea. And people are like, what? <laughs> Why would you do that? And it's because yep. these parts need so much compassion and care and that's kind of what the people on the outside world need to do too. So welcoming those parts in to the conversation rather than dismissing them with, with some kind of myth, that, you know, that you're talking about. Are there, are there other myths that people, I guess, sort of fall yes. into with this stuff? Yes, definitely. Uh, so another really common one is that suicide is selfish Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's more of a belief that people might have. But um, Thomas Joyner, who I talked about his Mm. research before, he's actually got a fantastic 
uh, lecture on YouTube about some of these myths and I particularly like how he approached, well, is suicide selfish? Let's unpack that. And what he says about that is that, first of all, let's revisit his model that we talked about earlier Mm. and that for people who are desiring suicide, they're basically taking their lives or thinking about taking their lives on their own belief that people would be better off without them. Mm. So they're not actually really thinking about themselves. So first of all, that kind of tells us, well, maybe it's not selfish. Mm. And the other thing that he does is to go, okay, if suicide is really selfish, let's have a look at the group of people in this world who are the most selfish people in the whole world, what's been actually proven, what type of people. Mm. And it's psychopaths have been shown to be the most selfish people in the world. I was going to say narcissists and psychopaths. Yeah, yeah, yep. So if in order to die by suicide, you have to be a selfish person, psychopaths should be dying by suicide at huge rates. But guess what? They almost never do. So lots of other myths. The other one that I think is probably one of the most damaging ones is that it's dangerous to talk about suicide in the sense that if I ask someone if they're thinking about suicide and they're not, I might put the idea into their head. Mm -hmm. And there is no truth around that. So this has been researched so much to determine. And what it's shown is that, first of all, by talking about or asking about suicide in a caring way, you cannot put the idea into someone's head. If it's there, it's there. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is that if we ask someone if they're thinking about suicide, we don't do it for no reason. We do it because they've said or done something that's really concerned us. Yeah. That person is likely sending out an opportunity or an invitation to us to ask that question. And what we know Again, what research tells us is that that person will feel relieved that their pain and their distress has been seen by someone. Mm, that's really important. And I think this sort of leads into as well in, in terms of how we increase confidence to ask someone about their suicidal thoughts. So, I mean, you've just given a, an example of that really. Is there, another, is there anything else you teach people in terms of asking, or, I guess, around how to ask? Yeah, so we have a, a, a huge discussion around this because it's naturally something that is very confronting for people mm. and they're really concerned about. So most people feel as though they don't want to ask, not because they don't care, but because they think, well, what if they say yes, what am I going to do then? That's a valid concern and that's yeah. something we go on to cover. People are often afraid that the person will be angry or offended that mm. they've asked. That's another really common reaction. So the thing about asking about suicide, it needs to be done in a direct way and in a way that is non-judgmental. So we don't want to say something like, are you thinking about doing something stupid? Uh, Well, first of all, it's not direct because stupid could be anything. And second (laughs) of all, it's not stupid to that person. There's a whole lot of stupid in the world, isn't there? (laughs) Exactly. So it's a very real option for them. So for us to label that stupid or silly, that's really minimising that person's pain and adding to 
everything else, how bad they're feeling about themselves. We also don't want to ask the question in a way that elicits the response that we want. So let's say, Mm -hmm. for example, Jodie, you invite me around to your house for dinner Mm. and um, I've had a great evening with you and you've Mm. cooked a beautiful meal and I get up to leave and I say, oh, you don't want me to wash up, do you? How are you most likely to respond? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 don't worry. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh, no. So you wouldn't really be able to tell the truth even if you wanted me to. So Mm. that's why I encourage people not to say things like, you're not thinking about suicide, are you? Or you're not thinking about ending your life. So we need to say directly, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about ending your life? Um, Or even to... To rephrase what that person said to you. So if they say, everyone would be better off without me, my go-to is often, so when you say you think everyone would be better off without you, are you thinking about suicide? So you're very, very clear. Yes, that's right. And that's the option that I think alleviates some concerns for people who are worried that, oh, what if they feel angry or whatever for asking? Because we're kind of telling them why we're asking. I'm asking you because you've said this and I'm concerned. Yeah. But someone getting angry shouldn't be a deterrent either. You know, I, absolutely. I think absolutely. obviously we've been in therapy, so we're good with our anger. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, I think generally in the world, people, particularly women, will avoid anger at all costs. So, yeah. um, so what if the person does get angry with you? Better angry than harming themselves. Exactly. And anger is something that, like, if someone sees someone that looks really sad or depressed, they're more likely to approach them. But if someone's acting out in anger, they're more likely to take that personally and think, oh, I was only trying to help or, Mm. oh, that person, you know, doesn't want my help or whatever. Whereas anger is often a way that people are trying to reach out in the only yeah. way that they know how. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure if we've got time, but I've actually got um, a yeah, pretty amazing time. story that I want to share around anger. And it comes from a workshop I was delivering a few years ago now. You know, it was only small. We had about 10 people there. And one of the participants was, um, you know, a man who's probably in his 60s, I would guess. And from the moment he came into the workshop, it just came across as very volatile, very unsupportive. Anytime I'd said something or someone else would say something, he would roll his eyes. He would (laughs) scoff. He would, you know, let it be known that, Mm. you know, I think this is bullshit. Anyway, when it was a lunch break, I had recognised, and again, through, you know, my own experience with anger and therapy and things like that, I'd recognised, you know, I need to speak to this man and and see what's going on, see how he is. So my first approach was to go sit down next to him and say, oh, you know, hi there and how are you finding the workshop? And he just unleashed. So he was like, you know, you're using American videos and they should be Australian and you haven't talked about this and spent too much time talking about this. Like he really went off at me. Mm. And my first response was to gently try and justify some of the things that he'd said so I would Mm. say oh I agree I wish that we had the budget for Australian videos and you know the reason why I've talked about that is because of this and that as we can understand now fired him up even more (laughs) so I changed my approach which was to go thanks for telling me that Mm. I haven't heard that before I'm gonna take that on board yeah and he de-escalated so quickly and then we sat there in a bit of silence and he said, oh, you probably want to go and get some lunch. 
And I said, no, I'm actually enjoying sitting here hearing from you. And he said, okay, probably 30 seconds passed by when neither of us said anything. And then he said to me, you know, it was a year ago today I tried to kill myself. I've never told anybody that before. Mm. And so then I was able to respond to saying, you know, Mm. to say to him, thank you for telling me. Mm. I'm really glad you're still here. Oh, yeah. And and it just goes to show how seen he felt by you in his anger. Yeah. Yes, well, actually, that's not, right. his, not his anger. His the anger is typically a cover up in those sort of cases. Yep. But you actually really saw him. Yes, and then after the lunch break, he was a completely different participant. Oh, wow. He was encouraging. He was friendly. And then at the end, like I'm so glad I actually had a colleague who I still do work with, and she's a really good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that she was there because otherwise, you know, people could think. Did that really happen? Yeah. You wouldn't believe it otherwise. So I actually have a witness, which I'm (laughs) thankful for. So when we got to the end of the, or near the end of the workshop, he said to me, Fiona, can I say something to everyone? I was like, yeah, go for it. So he stood up and he told everyone, a year ago today, I tried to kill myself. And everyone in that group was really supportive. And you could just see that he felt cared for and he was beaming. Mm. And at the end of the workshop, because my colleague wasn't part of that lunchtime conversation, she said to me, okay, not going to judge you if he slipped something into his tea, but what did he do to this man? And, um, yeah, sat with him, listened to him. Yeah. Exactly. And I just think that's so important because people tend to be scared. And, of course, we're, you know, if, if, if someone's angry and attacking and scary, Obviously, that's different out, out in the world or mm. on the street or something. But um, yeah. when family members and friends and whatever else are angry, there is always, always, always something else going on underneath. Mm. And to trying, I guess, to not be so intimidated by that and to even yeah. just something simple by saying, you know, I hear how angry you are. I think you've raised some really good points there. So, so let's, yeah, we're going to talk about your courses and other ways of helping you know, in these sort of situations. But first of all, I know that you're a um, massive advocate for therapy, long-term therapy. So I would love for you to share a little bit about how, I guess, how you recovered and how basically anyone suffering with anything that we've spoken about today. So it could be anxiety, depression, disordered eating, suicide, I guess, how therapy helped you through all these sort of issues, the type of therapy, the length of your therapy, and whatever else you'd love to say about that. Okay, sure. I'd love to share that. So as I mentioned earlier, I kind of started therapy without really knowing I'd started therapy because (laughs) I went to a naturopath and she had obviously recognized that there's a lot of stuff much deeper going on here. And so she asked me some questions in general and things, you know, started to come up for me. So one of them was around my dad, who at that point had been dead for about five years. And Mm. I'd convinced myself, oh, I've totally dealt with that. You know, it's fine. Mm. And and people would talk to me about it or ask me about it and I wouldn't cry and everything was fine. But the moment she asked me, because she was such an expert at, you know, really holding space, Mm. I just broke down and it really shocked me because I'd convinced myself that I had had acceptance around this. So that was kind of the first thing. And I think like my therapy journey, I did what I think a lot of people do in therapy. So it's like, you know, I went for 
a reason and then you start to discover the main reason you're going is only a little symptom of everything else. So all of this other stuff starts to come up. So what I did, if it wasn't too uncomfortable, I'd work through it, have some mini breakthroughs. But then when it felt like this is too confronting, I would just stop going. Okay. Then I would have a life experience. So for example, the pain of of going through IVF. Yeah. Where that pain would exceed my fear around feeling confronted in therapy. And then that would make me return. Mm. And so I had, I did do that a few times where I would go and then I'd pull away and then I'd go back because something more painful would happen. So I think that was one of the things I, I wanted to point out. And I think that that is really normal that people can experience that. And I think like the breakthrough for me where I stopped doing that was that I had felt safe enough to start to share things that I had never told a living soul ever, Mm -hmm. whether it was a thought or an action. And that was met with such empathy and zero judgment that that made me feel like, okay, I can confront the really dark things in my life because I know that this person isn't going to try and slap a band-aid on it or judge me or anything like that. In terms of like breakthroughs, and it didn't feel like it at the time, but I think one of my breakthroughs occurred as a result of being in so much, you know, emotional pain, feeling as though you're like, I'm ready to almost like learn another way to live. And, you know, so it might be letting go of old behaviours, letting go of a lot of beliefs. And these beliefs, because we all have our own belief system, these beliefs made me feel as though, you know, if people ask you that question, so who are you? Mm -hmm. To me, I used to always think, oh, it's, you know, these beliefs and what I believe and things like that. So when my therapist helped me to strip all of those away, I was left with, I have no idea who I am. Like I'm just a shell. And I remember really breaking down about that and her saying to me, I know it feels like you're in the worst place but you're actually in a really beautiful place and you're going to come to see that because you have now realised and understood this actually wasn't true. This doesn't serve me. Like I don't deserve this anymore. All of those sorts of things. And you can start to build a new belief system, which is essentially what I did because before therapy, I was always that person. I was in a victim mentality. Mm. So blaming myself for everything and hating myself on the inside, but on the outside being that person of not wanting to take any responsibility, feeling more comfortable that something's always someone else's fault. But that's also a very powerless place to live. Mm -hmm. So I think that the biggest thing is that therapy helped me to regain my power to love myself, to trust myself, to have confidence in myself and to go from being that person who placed all of her worth and self-value on a number on a scale or what I looked Mm. like Mm. to now that does not factor into my self-worth one little bit like at all Mm. in that sense I feel as though I'm completely recovered Mm. I feel as though I think I'm always going to have that tendency now to as an old coping mechanism to want to soothe with food to binge eat or want to you know massively restrict and all of that sort of thing and so I think it's like an ongoing journey but at least now I'm aware and then I can ask myself 
why am I reaching for this? What's yep. going on? Yep. What's really happening here? And I had like a realisation, it was, you know, a few weeks ago and I was just kind of had one of those days. It wasn't anything in particular that happened, but I just felt a bit down. Like we mm. all have those days. It's normal to feel like that. And my initial response was to, I want to grab a packet of biscuits or a bag of chips or something mm. like that. I want to soothe mm. myself in that way. And I stopped myself and went, that's what I want to do, but what do I need? Like, what do you need? Absolutely. And I realised that what I actually really wanted was to feel comfort. How can I do that? I'm going to run myself a bath. I'm going to put in some beautiful bubble bath and I'm going to, you know, surround mm. the bath with beautiful candles. And that's what I did instead. So it's oh, like you, for you me. Totally, you totally had me at yeah. bath. <laughs> Yeah, I knew I would. I know that you love your um, your baths and I can, I can understand why. And that really nourished me and gave me everything mm. that I wanted. Mm. And so for me, I think it's it will be an ongoing journey for a lot of my life probably to be aware of that and remind myself of this and all, but, you know, not beat myself up about any of those things either. Like it's okay. We could do like an episode on almost everything you said there. <laughs> but I think in, you know, the past, certainly early days of therapy or before therapy, I would never have stopped to do that because I had no self-worth. I didn't deserve to feel comfort. I didn't deserve to experience enjoyment in that sort of way. And that's where I have full recovery in myself that... I no longer and have not for, you know, a number of years now viewed mm-hmm. myself in the way that I'm not important. Like I genuinely have a lot of love for myself. And I think growing up, I think like I'm not sure if it was the same for you, but in school it would be like if you had a moment of feeling proud or you gave yourself a compliment and people would just be like, oh, you love yourself or you're up yourself like it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So we're almost taught, well, that's how I was at school and things, that um it's not okay to validate yourself. And so then as adults, like, I had to learn how to do that. In Australia, we, you know, just for international listeners, we call it tall poppy syndrome. Yes. You can't be yep. too big for your boots. You can't, you know, you've yes. got to squash yourself at any sort of opportunity. Exactly. And I think when you start, like, I think that was one of the many greatest gifts of therapy that I got because I completely believe in myself if there's something I want to do if I have my mind to it I can do it I believe Mm. in myself and it's it's an incredible feeling so even though therapy in many ways it was such a hard slog and I would never have wished the things that happened to me to go to therapy Mm. I can see that wow like look at these amazing lessons and and personal transformation and growth that I've experienced as a result and I think oh it's all worth it and really what you're talking about is you know there was a couple of things in there that I really picked up on the who am I and I guess I want to say I want to pick up on this as a therapist talking who am Mm. I typically it doesn't matter what brings you to therapy it is always 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 about who am I typically Mm. for a younger sort of a person. And then as we start to get a little bit older, it it becomes more existential around where am I and where am I Mm. going? So for the majority of the therapy, we're not really even working with the eating disorder or the the addiction. I mean, Mm. we are sort of weave through, but it's really about who am I separate from who I've been told I am. So your parents were saying, you know, you're fat um, and you don't ever want to be fat. And we 
we we internalize that and then we we're sort of breaking free from those uh we call them parental amargos so i think it's really important that you touched on that and and the other thing around the victim and i want to put this out to people because a lot of people view the victim as negative in psychosynthesis Mm. the therapy that i uh, trained in we see that every single part of us has a spiritual quality at the core and Mm. i'm going to suggest that for you to do the work that you do with with the population that you work with you would not be able to do that work without having had that victim because Mm. she knows what it feels like and she carries so much empathy and compassion and even just talking to that guy in the course you know i could hear how much empathy and compassion you had for him and Mm. without having a victim we, we don't I mean, to be a therapist, I have had to have a very, very, very big victim. And she also has a lot of empathy and compassion for people. So if you're out there listening Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, I need to get rid of that victim or I'm such a victim, be kind to her. Absolutely. And that reminded me of something that you've said earlier and feeds into what you were just saying Mm -hmm. around part of my therapy was also inviting that person who is depressed or angry or whatever into the room. And the way that my therapist did this was almost like we got to the point with our relationship. It wasn't even so much about that I would go in and go, oh, this has happened, that was happening, that's happening. She'd say, what are you feeling? Where are you feeling it in your body? Yeah. You know, close your eyes if you need to. What does it look like? Does it have a shape? Or, you know, if we did work on um, inner child, it might be how is she feeling? And so what I started to realise was that, yeah, there are these different parts, the angry part, the sad part, the happy part, the whatever part. And what I started to do was to be able to love all of those parts of me to realise that angry part of me, that's trying to protect that child in me that might have been told this or been through that. So I started to actually have love and respect for these parts of me that society or we're taught are not kind or not nice, like they're there for a reason, just Mm. like that man in the course, Mm. you know, was probably using his anger to reinforce his own beliefs about himself. No one cares about me. So if I act really angry, people Mm. are going to ignore me. You know, yes, it's like a self-destructive and self-perpetuating yeah. sort of behaviour, isn't it? Exactly. Or it oh, could be, you gosh. know, like I know of people who act out in anger a lot because they've been through so much trauma and stuff in life that their voice is the only thing that's been able to protect them. Mm. So it's like people might view that as negative, but you know what, that's part of that person trying to protect themselves. Mm. So, yeah, every feeling and part of us is completely valid and it's there for a reason and it's a it's a pretty incredible journey as we get to know that. And I think that that sort of leads us into, you know, another question about therapy. And so for someone listening today, and actually I want to say something else first, typically when we are sent to or when we arrive at the doctor's surgery and we get referred for therapy, typically a lot of the sort of short-term sort of therapies out there around finding solutions and eradicating these sort of behaviours and parts. And I guess I want to say that this is a very different journey and it's more around accepting those parts and integrating them and seeing the value in them. And that can Mm. take time. So what would you say to someone out there today who's listening and is thinking, okay, I want some of what she's got, (laughs) but therapy takes way too long. What would you say to them? I would say 
yes, it, it is a commitment. Yes, it will take, it, it might take a long time, but do you know what? The time's going to pass anyway. Mm. So at least on the other side, we've got a completely different way of living than what we've ever known or a different way of feeling about ourselves than what we've ever known. And yes, it can be really confronting, intimidating, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But my gosh, I feel like it's the best thing, the best gift I could have ever given to myself. And for me personally, I've seen a few different psychologists in my life. I think psychology 100% has its place. My sister is a psychologist. Psychologists have massively helped me. I've tended in my own personal journey to go to psychologists for more short-term things. So the lady that I did my therapy with, I don't believe that she was a registered psychotherapist, but I think from knowing you and talking to you so much in the past, Jody, that that's very much what she was using. So I think it's also about finding someone that you do connect with, that you do trust, that you do have that rapport with, because I guess any therapist out there, you know, could be amazing for one person, but just may not click with the other person and that's okay. So I think don't be afraid to try a couple of different people to feel as though you have that fit, but at the same time, perhaps be aware that you might have a person that's really good for you there. But that part of you that wants to run away because it's confronting might try and tell you that this person isn't a fit, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just like to point out to listeners, particularly in America, psychotherapy is not regulated in Australia. So what will happen, and actually for Australian residents too, you might not know this either. So typically when you get a Medicare referral, you will be referred to either a psychologist or a social worker. That is not psychotherapy. It is social work and psychology. So counsellors and psychotherapists in Australia, you don't have to be registered. So basically anyone can call themselves a counsellor or a psychotherapist. So it is important that you take care when choosing someone. But mm. just because we aren't a registered profession doesn't mean to say you, you shouldn't use one because often mm. we, you know, I know just for example, my training, for example, was eight years of study and you had to be in your own therapy for the whole time. And that is very typical of someone who studies counselling and psychotherapy. We have done a lot of work um, alongside our training in terms of our own personal work, which isn't required of psychologists and social workers. And that's not to say that they don't do that work. Many of them do, but typically mm. counselling and psychotherapy, we, we are made to have our own therapy. So American listeners don't freak out when Fiona says that, you know, her therapist wasn't necessarily registered. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just the way it is here in Australia. So thank you for yeah. pointing that out. So look. Our, um, oh, it, the other thing, sorry, yep. the other thing I just wanted to say in particularly, sure. I'm not sure how systems are working overseas, but in Australia, mm. so at the time of my therapy, my husband and I lived on a farm. We were up to our eyeballs in debt. Uh-huh. And every time I saw my therapist I, at that time, I think it was say, you know, hundred bucks a session. Mm. I made, like made sure I had money for that because it wasn't so, yeah, I could have gone and seen someone else that I didn't click with and have the sessions bulk build and be limited by the number of sessions. But I think for people, because that can be a turn off going, oh, you know, I can't afford it and things like that. And that may genuinely be the case, but it's also kind of going, okay, I'm going to make this investment here. And yeah, I'm, you know, may not get financial aid or support or my health fund might not cover this or that or things like that. But don't let that be a turn off factor for you. If there's a way that you can afford it with someone that you connect with and you believe is going to 
really help to to transform where you are in life, it's the best investment I've ever made. Oh, that is a really, really, really good point. So thank you so much for sharing that with people because I think typically when you're in a place of really chronic low self-worth and, you know, all these other feelings that you've been talking about today, mm. the idea of spending $100 you know, anywhere between, I think people probably charge, depending on area in Australia, between 75 and and sort of 150 is typical for counselling and psychotherapy. It's like, mm. why would I spend that money on myself every yes. year? You've got to be kidding. I don't deserve yep. anything, let alone that. I remember saying that to my husband as well. We can't afford this. I can't be spending this money. Mm. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have had him and his support because he would say things to me like, this is the most important thing. This person is really helping you. I don't want you to worry about money. Like, we'll find a way. So it would have probably been a very different story if I had had a partner that was Mm. unsupportive and all of that sort of thing. But thankfully that wasn't the case. But, yeah, I, I, I can really relate to going... I don't deserve this. Mm. I can't spend this on myself, particularly when we don't have much money. But, yeah, it's so, so worth it. And what a lovely husband. (laughs) I know. I'm so lucky. (laughs) So, look, you know, let's talk about the work that you do. We've run over time, but I don't care because this is going to be such a valuable episode for people. I just think you're obviously your professional experience, but I think people hearing that personal journey is really going to touch them. So let's talk about the wonderful work that you're doing and that your team are doing at Find Hope. So you've got Mm -hmm. several programs. Can you share them with our listeners? I do. So most of the programs I deliver are ones that I've developed Mm -hmm. based on professional experience, evidence-based, but having my own personal experience is embedded in that as well. There's only one workshop I deliver that I do not own and I deliver it because I think it's brilliant and I wouldn't try and recreate it because there's no point reinventing the wheel, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'll, so I'll include that as well. So one workshop I deliver um, is called Find Hope Workshop. Now that workshop and also the name as well of my business is, mm-hmm. and the reason why I named it Find Hope It's been my experience from what I see and what I hear when it comes to suicide, whether it's how do we prevent it or whether it's a person who is suicidal, there's very little hope. I believe and I know that there is hope even if other people haven't found that. So my goal is to help people to find some level of hope when it comes to suicide. So it's, you know, and I feel very, very privileged to be able to do that. So the first workshop that I offer is called the Find Hope Workshop. So it goes for about four hours and it's all around understanding suicide. So addressing some myths around suicide and providing people with some skills. So more like a basic set of skills about what, how they might identify someone could be thinking about suicide, how do they respond and what professional supports are available, but equally what sort of social supports are going to be important for people as well. So that's the first one. Another one is called Find Hope After Suicide. And so that's a suicide postvention workshop. And this is very much born out of the death of my father because Mm -hmm. when my dad died, I clearly remember at the time 90% of people, like friends that were in my life, I never heard from, I never saw again. 
And it's a very, very lonely journey being a person bereaved by suicide. Now, that's not to say that there weren't people like, you know, friends, family, Mm. friends of the family. We had, we were so, so lucky to have so many beautiful people to support us. However, we also copped a lot of judgment about my dad and people's expectations about when we should move on and things like that. So I've always felt for many, many years, I wish people knew how to support someone bereaved. Mm. And this has been on my radar of what I've really wanted to create for about four years, but it was only when I started working privately in my business July last year that I had the freedom to create something like that. That workshop also then includes how do I support someone after a suicide attempt? Mm -hmm. Again, that relates to my dad because my dad had a suicide attempt before his death, but we had no idea how to support him. And, you know, lots of myths involved with that and all of that sort of thing. So this program really looks at if I know someone who's attempted suicide, how do I support them? Mm. If I know someone who is bereaved by suicide, How do I support them? It also, and this is an evidence-based program as well. So, and we look at things like that are really important for people to understand, like talking to children about suicide, if a a death by suicide has occurred. And it's so common that people want to hide it from children or not say anything. But particularly if it's a close family member, children are bloody perceptive. They're going to know something's going on. And if they're not informed in a way... Um, that's relevant to their age, they're going to internalise it. And that looks like it must have been my fault. I did this. So we talk about, you know, what are some age-appropriate ways children can be spoken to about suicide, but then there's a wealth of free resources and information for people to explore that even more. So that workshop, it's for community, it's for professionals, it's for Mm -hmm. anyone who feels as though I don't know how I would support someone in these cases. So I've delivered that to people who have no health background, not work in the sector at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I've also delivered it to people who do work in the sector. And they've both been met with, because it's only 12 months old and obviously with COVID, I haven't had a huge amount of opportunities to deliver it. Mm. And I'm actually really blown away with how much of the content that people, regardless of their background, are completely unaware of. And it makes me think, oh, I'm glad that I'm doing this. Well, even as you're talking, I think I need to come and do that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. I think because there's over the years there's been a lot of money. So I think over the years the government has invested money in certain things, so like suicide prevention education, for example. But Mm. postvention really gets left out. But the thing is, postvention is prevention because if Mm. someone has lost someone close to them to suicide, it increases their risk of suicide by up to six times. Wow. Um, So we need to, yeah, so it's yet another risk factor. Mm. Um, So it's just as important. And if we think about if someone... You know, if, if there's a family who has lost a loved one in almost any other way, mm. they'll be bringing around casseroles, they'll be offering to take the kids to school, all of those sorts of things. That is far less likely to happen 
with a death by suicide, it's such a stigmatised death and that oh, people wow. think, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I'll probably say the wrong thing so I won't say anything, but in doing so makes that person feel very alone and mm. unloved and rejected. So it's even just those really simple messages in there that people, um, through no fault of their own, of course, are unaware of. So that's what I aim to teach in that. I then combine the prevention and the postvention workshop so I can put that all together and do a one-day workshop on both. Uh-huh. And then there is another program I deliver currently that's delivered by myself and uh, Nathan Blacklock, who there's any Australian football followers will know that uh, will know who he is, an Aboriginal man from Tinga, which is very close to where I live in Inverell. And together we have developed a suicide prevention workshop that is delivered on country in a yarning circle for Aboriginal communities and that's called Find Healing. And then lastly, the workshop that I deliver that I don't own, but I'm a registered trainer for, is a workshop called ASSIST, Mm -hmm. A-S-I-S-T. So that stands for Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training and it's owned by a company called Living Works. It is a two-day workshop that teaches people suicide first aid skills. Mm -hmm. So how do I recognise and respond to someone who's suicidal right now and how can I work with them on a plan to -hmm. support their immediate safety? And it is a brilliant program. If I thought, oh, I think this program's needed, but I think I could do a better job, I'd do that. (laughs) But Like, it's just fantastic. I absolutely um, love it. So I deliver that one as well. So that goes for two days. So that's kind of offering people something anywhere from four hours to two days and kind of anything in between as well. So I do offer what I call tailored presentations. So Mm -hmm. one of the local schools, primary school, for example, last year just asked me to do, put together a 90-minute presentation, something that was going to be relevant for their staff who were feeling really burnt out, who were feeling really stressed. How can I look after myself better and how can I kind of understand why I'm feeling this Mm. way? So things like that as well. Wow. So I just want to come back to something that you mentioned about Tinga. So um, obviously I've been yep. there because I've been up to stay with you guys when you had the farm. But um, yep. it might be interesting for you to know that our sister school for where my kids go is in Tinga. <laughs> really? <laughs> it is. Is there a Tinga public school? or it's somewhere? There it's is. somewhere up there yep. somewhere because I remember when the principal mentioned, I thought, hey, I've been there. <laughs> But but, um, I'm thinking, and when I was researching your website and I didn't quite know what I wanted to say about this or whether I was going to fumble my words with it or whatever, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So I am thinking that the find healing and doing that on country, we could all learn something from that. And massively, uh, yeah, and just how disconnected we are from the earth and from country, mm. and all Australians, a bit because we're talking about Indigenous Australia, we could all do mm. with learning more about our own history, Indigenous history, what's going on with the Indigenous population in terms of everything spirituality, mental health, mm. and really for us to find ways to connect more and more with the land. And you know, I'm thinking you've got something there. <laughs> But um, definitely, the thing is, is that Aboriginal health is so holistic. Mm. So it's so much more than if we look at, say, the World Health Organization mainstream definition. It's a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. Yeah. But for Aboriginal people, and really, arguably for everyone, but it's just Aboriginal people who are very aware of these innate connections. Exactly. Yeah. There's all different sort of connections that comprise our health, connection to our body, connection Mm. to our mind, to the land, to culture, 
to spirituality, to ancestry, to family and community. So Mm. it's actually been a beautiful learning journey for me because I witness so much of people who come to the Find Healing Workshop to really be in awe of their level of connections that many people have that it inspired me to find out more because I grew up knowing nothing about my ancestors basically. Mm. So then I've, you know, ended up doing a whole family tree and, you know, having more of a sense of where I've come from and that's interesting. And then also getting so used to doing on country workshops and feeling the, the beauty and the peace of the nature that you're sitting amongst. I now, like I'm 100% a barefoot person unless I'm going down the street or I have to have shoes on. I never have shoes on. I always take time each day as part of my own self-care to walk on the grass, to walk outside, connect with the earth. And that was actually one of my, um, I just it's coming up now, one of my first parts of therapy when, or not my first part, but when I, because I've been in therapy for a few years and then was going through a particularly bad, very brutal episode of depression mm-hmm. and was suicidal. And part of, I guess, my healing and my homework for my therapist was to walk outdoors with no shoes on. We were on a farm at the time. Beautiful. Go for a swim in the dam and feel the water on your skin and Mm. the ripples in the water and the mud on the floor of the dam and all of that sort of stuff. And it's so grounding. Um, So, yeah, I'm completely with you that anyone could benefit from Mm. an on-country workshop for sure. Yeah, and look, I've just got to say, I just you know this. I've always loved your therapist. I don't know who she is, but <laughs> I love the yeah. stories that you tell. So, yeah, um, fantastic. And I know you've got a really quite active Facebook community. Actually, can you tell people how they can find you on Facebook? Yeah, absolutely. So, if you type in "find hope," so two separate words, that should hopefully bring up the page. And the logo is like a tree of life, or it's facebook.com slash find hope AUS for Australia. Great. And how can they find your website? What's your website address for your workshops? So it is www.find-hope.com.au. And with my workshops, like normally I say I can deliver Australia-wide. Obviously that's not happening at the moment, New Mm. South Wales only. But I'm also, so, you know, it might be an organisation that says, can you come and deliver to our organisation? Or I might receive a government grant. Or I might plant a workshop in areas that people know me and know the work Mm -hmm. I do and so are easy to fill. But I'm also really open for anyone, you know, say, for example, who's listening, who thinks, I really want that. I'm more than happy to have a chat, have a conversation, think, oh, how could we bring this to your community? Mm. And if there's no funding, while it would be a cost to people, I would be really happy to to work and try and promote and work with that person in their own community to Mm. try and bring it there. So it's certainly not in any way just limited to an organisation contracting me. If people are wanting to know these skills, I'd be very happy to be part of how they might receive those. Yeah. That's fantastic. So look, I've got to say, this has been 
such a wonderful conversation. I just think that so many people are going to just get so much out of everything that you've been talking about, your own story and, you know, how you're bringing this into your professional life. And I think I just want to say, Fiona, you've also studied Indigenous studies and law and um, was it sociology mm. and, you, you yeah. know, so you've got the sort of the technical background there as well, I guess. So people are just going to get so much out of this. Thank you so much for coming today. Oh, you're welcome and thank you for having me. And likewise, I've really enjoyed connecting with you about all of the various things that we've we've talked about it's been so great yeah and I'm just would also like to for people who are in Australia there's just a number if I can just provide to people Perfect. that a service that many people don't know about mm-hmm. so it's called the suicide callback service and it's a 24/7 crisis line here in Australia and all of the counsellors are trained to be able to support people who are impacted by suicide. So it might be that you are bereaved by suicide, that you're suicidal, that you're caring for someone who's suicidal. Maybe you've just done an intervention with someone and you need to have a debrief. So I just first of all want to give you their number, which is one 659 467 And the reason why it's called callback service is that if there's someone that you speak to that you really connect to connect with you can have multiple free sessions with that person so you're not going to have to speak to someone new each time oh wow Um, yeah so it's a great service and their website um is just suicidecallbackservice.org.au I believe it is they've got an online chat if that's something that you're more comfortable with I've referred many many people over the years to that service I've not heard a bad thing personally about them it's Mm. they seem very very caring and well skilled to be able to have conversations in that in that space so know that that's available for you if you in any way feel triggered by some of the things that we've talked about that that, that's that's available for you that's fantastic so thank you so much and we'll speak soon great thanks Jodie this is episode 12 for the show notes go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 12 find hope when you feel like dying thanks for listening bye for now Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.